Welcome here to the Greenwald Pavilion. Um, this is a world affairs track, and what we're going to be talking about today is smart power, promise or policy. My name is Greg Bangs. I'm with Booz Allen Hamilton, and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce a colleague of mine, Jack Mayer, Executive Vice President, who's going to lead this panel. Jack? Great. Thank you, Greg. Uh, good morning, everyone, and again, welcome to the Aspen Ideas Festival and this morning's panel discussion on smart power, premise or policy. As Greg said, I'm Jack Mayer. I'm an executive vice president of Booz Allen and Hamilton, and I will be your moderator this morning. I am joined on the panel by Dr. Joseph Nye. Joe is a university distinguished service professor and former dean of the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He has served in several administrations as the Undersecretary of State for Security Assistance, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, and is Chairman of the National Intelligence Council. So Ms. Henrietta Four, Henrietta is Chairman and CEO of Holzman International, a management and investment company. She is former director of the U.S. Mint, served as the Undersecretary for Management in the Department of State, and was administrator for the U.S. Agency for International Development. Mr. Greg Mortensen. Greg co-founded the Central Asia Institute and founded Pennies for Peace. He is author of Three Cups of Tea and Stones into Schools. He received Pakistan's highest civil award, the Star of Pakistan, for his humanitarian efforts to promote education and literacy in rural areas of Pakistan. And Mr. Steve Clements. Steve directs the America Strategy Program at the New America Foundation and publishes the popular political blog, The Washington Note. He serves as the Executive Vice President of the Economic Policy Institute and as Senior Policy Advisor in Economics and International Affairs for Senator Jeff Bingaman. You know, in, in pursuit of foreign policy strategy, the United States has been willing to project power as an instrument of its strategy since World War II. It has done it in various forms, in various regions of the world, and with various degrees of success. It has withstood the threat of superpowers and won, as evidenced by the fact that it is largely regarded today as the only existing superpower. Yet superpower has its own limitations. When the United States entered Iraq in March of 2003, it demonstrated its power with a strategy dubbed shock and awe and defeated the Iraqi army in less than 45 days. But by 2005, when the United States was still involved in the conflict, it realized that military might or hard power was not sufficient to end the conflict. The military was ill-prepared to undertake development effort required to rebuild a nation and win the support of the Iraqi people. If Iraq and now Afghanistan are examples of the types of conflicts that the United States might be engaged in in the future, hard power alone will not be sufficient to prevail. If our foreign policy strategy is going to consider such conflicts as an act of last resort, then hard power alone is not the answer. Today we are going to talk about a new concept for foreign policy strategy called smart power. It starts from the premise 
that you can mitigate potential conflict situations ahead of time by, by employing the diplomatic, defense, and economic and development power of the United States to further our influence and national interests throughout the world. It requires the coordinated engagement of multiple government departments and agencies, the cooperation of non-governmental agencies, and the support of the American people. In short, it requires a mega-community approach to foreign policy. So Joe, you're credited with having coined the phrase smart power back in 2003. From your perspective, what is smart power, smart power and how do I institute it as a foreign policy strategy? Well, if you think about power, it's the ability to affect others to get the outcomes you want. And there are basically three ways you can do that. You can do it with threats of coercion, sticks. You can do it with payments or inducements, carrots. Or you can do it by attracting others and getting them to want what you want. If you can get others to want what you want, you can save a lot on carrots and sticks. And I called that soft power. Some people, though, got the idea that I thought that soft power is sufficient. The secret is not soft power per se. It's how do you integrate hard and soft power. And that's what smart power is, that ability to combine hard and soft power into a successful strategy. It's also interesting that uh, Hillary Clinton, in her testimony for confirmation to Secretary of State, picked up this phrase and said that the Obama administration was going to have a smart power strategy, which to her mind meant using all the tools in the toolbox of foreign policy. And the good news about that is that they're headed in the right direction in the sense of thinking this through. It's also true that some of the thinking about this had begun beforehand. Bob Gates, as Secretary of Defense, while he was in the Bush administration, gave a speech in Kansas City in 2007 and said it's a bit odd when you have a government which spends at that time about $500 billion on hard power and about, uh, well, if we call all of the State Department and aid and everything, uh, $50 billion uh, on soft power, uh, there's something strange in the proportions there. So there was thinking about this before the Obama administration, but the Obama administration has placed a priority or an emphasis on smart power. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is it's very hard to make this work in a large and unwieldy bureaucracy. There are a variety of instruments of, of smart power, public diplomacy, exchange programs, broadcasting, military-to-military uh, -military training, disaster relief, and, of course, AEID and assistance. These are all various tools in this toolbox that Hillary was talking about. But um, the bad news is that we're not there yet, uh, that integrating these is much harder than it takes, and getting more investment in them is harder than it first looks. Uh, there are all sorts of problems in the Congress and elsewhere. Indeed, I, I, I think it's hard probably to get people in the American political system to vote for things that sound soft as opposed to sound hard. In fact, one of the best people in the American Congress, a congresswoman from California named Jane Harmon, told me about two or three years ago, she said, you know, you're right about soft power. She said, it's very hard to get up on a political podium and say that. 
One of the nice things about smart power is not only does it point out the need to integrate hard and soft together, but I think it meets the Jane Harmon test, as you can say it publicly. Great, thanks. Henrietta, as former administrator for the, Internet, for the U.S. Agency for International Development, how would you expect that future development efforts play in this strategy? And how do you get the resources to be able to support those development efforts? Mm -hmm. um, a real challenge, and we have to go back and uh, look to Jane Harmon in Congress again for some of the resources. We're going to get Jane up here. <laughs> um, well, I won't ask you for anything. Yeah. <laughs> the interesting part about smart power is that it is so much in our national interest, and I think sometimes we don't realize how urgent and important it is. But when you look at the importance of growth to the United States, the growth will come from the countries that are emerging out of development. So it is the countries like Indonesia and China and Thailand and India and Pakistan and Turkey and Kenya and Ghana and Brazil and Mexico and uh, Peru and Colombia. They are the countries that are the opportunities. They are also the countries that carry many of the threats. So this notion of smart power is essential for our national interest, and it's something we really need to think about. When you ask an average audience, not, of course, the Aspen Institute Ideas Festival audience, they will think that more than 5% and sometimes 20 or 30% of the U.S. budget is spent on foreign aid, on foreign assistance. But the actual number is less than 1%. So it's a very small amount, and I think it's a good investment. But there are some real challenges, and um, I, I'll just uh, go through a couple of them. One is that development as a whole, and thus the integration of uh, soft and smart and hard powers together, is very complex. So integration in the world of development is difficult. Uh, take the food chain of trying to have scientists that understand the seeds, of trying to get the right farming techniques, of trying to be sure that there's equipment there that can help with the farming, that there are roads, that there are markets, that there's refrigeration, that there's a port, that there are trading regimes that allow this to occur, that the country is not in conflict so that food can move in a country. It's a very interdisciplinary activity. A second area that's very challenging is that of short-term and long-term. Short-term is very important in the whole notion of how we project power and how you win and influence hearts and minds. So that, for instance, the Aspen Institute has a Middle East initiative, and there's been work with girls and boys clubs for livelihoods in the Palestinian territories. That's very important. And Cisco and Intel and many others have programs in which you are training young people in how to use computers and how to use the IT and how to tap into thoughts around the world. But then it's also important to have long-term. There's been a 10-year education program in Indonesia. And Indonesia, as we know, has been a model for moderate Muslim education. So it's important to have both short-term and long-term. There's another conflict that's always pulling it at this world, which is that of conflict and post-conflict countries. So 60% of the countries in which USAID works and the development, US foreign assistance, are in conflict at any time. 
The average conflict in Africa is seven years, and it takes 14 years for a country to regain the economic level that it had prior to the conflict. So when you think about that, a country that is in conflict is very difficult. So if we can use smart power, and if we can prevent the conflict, that is to everyone's enormous benefit. And post-conflict is a whole other situation for us. I saw Olara Tanu, and I don't know if he's here, but he knows the Uganda example very well. And the Lord's Resistance Army, having um, ravaged the country for many years, there is now a time of reconciliation. But it's very difficult. If you have not learned to be a farmer, how do you become a farmer? You're returning to your village. How do you reconcile with the people in your village? And it is also something that you see in Liberia, where they have lost two generations because there is lack of literacy, because the young men headed off to war with, to armed conflict. So conflict and post-conflict is something that pulls at all of us in the, in the world of development. And I think uh, that as we look at it, there are two areas to focus on. One is partnership, that we have to do this kind of work in partnership with the other agencies, but also with nonprofit organizations, with businesses. These are tremendous examples, and I'd like to see the United States go more strongly into it. We can leverage our work. And then the last one is something that you will be very good on, which is we have to talk about our successes. Billboard campaigns really work. Radio campaigns, whether they're talking about uh, what you should teach in your second grade class or an upcoming election or about uh, lack of violence within a home, they work. So talk about it. Great, thanks. So Greg, you've been successful in parts of the world where few Americans would dare to tread. These concepts of smart power that we're talking about here this morning, can they be successful in the same places that you've seen success? And do you think that the NGO community would engage with the U.S. in a policy like this? Well, thanks, Jack and Henrietta and Steve and Joe. It's wonderful to be with you, and thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, I, I definitely think so. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, how many of you heard me talk last night <coughs> Okay, don't put your hands up after I ask this question. <clears throat> um, some of the best things that have happened, for example, in Afghanistan, where I've worked in Pakistan for 17 years, nobody knows about it. It's an example of smart power, and it's, or it's already happened. It doesn't have to be developed. Um, Ten years ago, there were 800,000 children going to school in Afghanistan, uh, mostly boys that hide the Taliban, Today, there are 9 million children going to school in Afghanistan, including 2.8 million females. Um, and how many of you knew about this before I told you right now? Okay, where did you hear about it? Bill Moyers. Bill Moyers, okay. Uh, I was on Bill, my books, okay. Um, anybody else? It's not, not, pardon me? David Petraeus. David Petraeus, okay. Um, and I think, um, you know, we're, we're so focused on the negative and setting our indicators on, you know, suicide bombings and terrorism and billions of dollars and everything else. But, and the real reason that's happened, though, is not because of U.S. aid or assistance. Some of it, you know, we're partly responsible. And, I'll, um, you know, I was briefing five U.S. senators on Capitol Hill about this last year. None of them knew about it. And afterwards, they pat themselves on the back. And I asked them, how can you take credit? for something you don't even know about, but that's a politician for you. But, <laughs> but anyways, you know, we, we, yes, we have had 
some part in it, but the real reason is because the communities have been in power. And I think uh, what you're talking about, smart power, maybe if I could add an EM in front of it, smart, smart empower, empower people. I think, you know, we have an innate desire to help people. It's, um, it's a human, whatever, it's part of a human existence. But what really makes a difference is we empower people. And I, I grew up in Africa for 15 years, and my father started a hospital on the slopes of Kilimanjaro. And one thing my father always insisted on was having local people in charge. And that often didn't go over very well with the Americans and Europeans. They said, you need a qualified Westerner to run this hospital. But my father insisted that an African run the hospital. And finally, when the uh, KCMC hospital opened up in 1971, at the inauguration, my father got up, and, <clears throat> along with Julius Nureri, the president, and gave a, a small speech. And he said, he predicted that in 10 years, all the department heads of the hospital would be from Tanzania. And basically, my father got fired within a couple of months for having the audacity to believe this hospital could be run by Africans. So we came back to the States, and my father, unfortunately, died from cancer. But 10 years later, we got the annual report, and all the department heads were from Tanzania. And even today, four decades later, all the department heads are from Tanzania. And in Afghanistan, there's an incredible program going on. It's, it's an Afghan program. It's called the National Solidarity Program. And it's, it's, um, they've done amazing things in, in many, many provinces. This, this is a um, completely, it's, a, it's an Afghan endeavor. And um, I, I would like to see more funding going to um, programs run by people. And I'll, I'll just give you one little, more little example. We set up by last year I think about 14 women's literacy centers. Women learn how to read and write and literacy and hygiene, sanitation, nutrition. Um, and my wife told me, why don't you let the women run the show? You know, and it's kind of a little bit out there idea. But so last spring, <laughs> I got the main shaker women together and we, we got them so they could meet once or twice a month. We also gave them cell phones where there's cell phone in the range of cell phones. And within a year, they had tripled the amount of women's literacy centers. We didn't put one dime into the new centers. And they told me in the next year, this year, they're going to put in about 1,000 women's literacy centers. And this isn't totally on their own, but, you know, it's kind of scary, too, when women, I think the other missing link is women. We Generally, men run most of these programs, but we don't involve women. There are some great programs with women, but um, I do think it's important we involve them. And I think the other thing to smart power, which you which you advocate, I just want to be an advocate for smart power, is that we have to have relationships. We can't just go cookie cutter projects around the world. Without relationships, nothing will happen. Um, it's, um, General Petraeus read Three Cups of Tea, um, as you mentioned, and um, he said there were three important points in the book that he had gleaned that he wanted to impart with the troops. And being a military general, he summarized in three bullet points, which makes it easy here. <laughs> he said, number one, we have to listen more. But listen means humility and also looking at a perspective from not our own myopic lens, but from their perspective. And number two, that we have to have respect. And respect means humility. And number three, that we have to build relationships. And um, I would just like to briefly just talk a little bit, you know, from my perspective, and everybody wants is your General McChrystal and the Rolling Stones on every mind. So I'll just briefly, just for a minute and a half, talk about this. 
But when General McChrystal was appointed last April, he replaced uh, General McKiernan, who was fired. And General McKiernan was fired just two days after he had apologized for the errant bombing of 29 people in Herat. And I, I think that might have been one of the reasons he got canned. He was also not properly advocating, or that they felt not doing coin properly. Um, General McChrystal, he asked me and a couple other people to set up dozens of meetings with the elders from all the provinces in Afghanistan with the, his advisory team. And his advisory team that I met wasn't the team that he was with in that article. It's just a different team. And I never heard one, you know, one remark from them that, that was uh, quoted in the media. And he said the top priority were, were not, it was avoiding civilian casualties, number two, being enemy-centric and not being, or being friendly-centric and not enemy-centric, and number three, he wanted to meet the elders. So in Afghanistan, every province has, there are 34 provinces, every province has maybe 50 to 200 elders. And an elder is called a shura, and a shura is, I've got one more minute. Uh, a shura is a, a businessman or a poet or a mujahideen or warrior, maybe even a woman, and they kind of rise up through the ranks. We had the same thing in Tanganyika or Tanzania where I grew up. There were, there were elders in the Maasai and the Chaga tribes there. And an elder is not elected, but they just gain credibility. And um, so over a period of the last year, these meetings started to happen. And it was only last month or two months ago, President Obama actually asked, ironically, of all our uh, government entities, he asked the military to advise him in a meeting in Capitol Hill for two, two hours at the White House, what are the elders saying to us in Afghanistan? So this is the first time our president in 10 years has asked what are the elders saying. And, and also President Karzai last month from June 2nd to 4th, he summoned 2,000 elders to Kabul. This was kind of in response to President Obama. What are the elders saying? And maybe later on I can tell you what the elders are saying, but um, it's, I think it's the key to that. And I also, you know, in American culture, I get really nervous, and I really don't like talking in front of adults, I go to, but I go to lots of schools every year, 120, 150 schools, and I always ask students this question. Maybe I can ask you this question. How many of you have spent a lot of time, more than 10 hours, talking to a, an older elder or your grandparents or your you know, grandmother about the Depression or World War II or the Vietnam or Civil Rights Movement or maybe the partition in Pakistan and Afghanistan? And the average in the U.S. I consistently get is 5 to 10 percent. Now, if I ask the same question in rural Afghanistan or Pakistan or even in Africa where I grew up, 90 or 100 percent of the hands come up. And I think that is one of the greatest tragedies of our country, that we don't have that tradition where we can learn and glean from our elders about our heritage, our folklore, our culture, and also many of the important lessons that we learn in history, like the Marshall Plan. So um, if we can add um, EM in front of smart power, smart empower, and that relationships and elders, then I think um, then we've got, got a long ways. We've gone a long ways. Great. So Steve, you've heard what the other panelists have had to say. Um, and from your perspective, the American people buy into a strategy called smart power? And even more so, would the Congress be willing to support it? And by support, I usually mean fund. Well, well, Jane should really answer that, that, that question, uh, not to keep using her as our crutch. Um, I don't want to be too much of a skunk at the picnic. Joe Biden says he thrives on being a skunk at the picnic, but I need to be the friendly skeptic somewhat 
to, to raise at least some of the other sides of these interesting questions. When I listen to Greg and I listen to Henrietta, you really get a sense of how individual events or how uh, an engagement in a community, a micro event, can have potentially macro uh, results. And that is the great side of this story. The downside of the story, I think, uh, is embedded to some degree more in, in, in Joe's more macro perspective of thinking about what smart power is and thinking about strategy. And to some degree, I think Americans today are faced with a lot of challenges. They see a world out there uh, where the equilibrium, the predictability we used to have in global affairs no longer exists. The equilibrium has been blown apart. And we can discuss that later, you know, to, what that means. They see nations like China rising. China is important because China goes into country, it, it, it looks at its own smart power. It doesn't worry a lot about the moral questions, but it does make a lot of people rich. And in my view, China is not taking a philanthropic approach to development. It's taking a, maybe a mercantilist uh, approach, and it is nonetheless probably creating tomorrow's middle classes and elites in a lot of societies, whereas I think we're doing something that may be you know, morally better, but we need to be aware of some of these other plate tectonics in, in global policy. We need to be aware, for instance, as I admire everything Greg is doing, I spent a few weeks ago some time with the Taliban's former foreign minister and the Taliban's former ambassador to Pakistan, and they were sitting around with a bunch of Pakistani generals, all chumming it up. And it, I saw right there one of the real challenges, that our, our enemies in Afghanistan are the allies of the Pakistani government and a substantial portion of the Pakistan. That's, that's a part of this story. It doesn't take anything away from what's happening with USAID, because I find the development issue to be, to be absolutely vital. But there are other elements of this, this equation that get neglected, and I think to some degree, Americans look at this and they say, wow, we've been at this for nine years, or we've really thrown a lot of resources. We're throwing $100 billion a year of resources into Afghanistan, which has a GDP of about $14 billion. Is there not a better way to achieve that? That's just our military money. That's not NGO money, and it's not the expenditures from every other government that, that, that's tied in there. So, and then part of it is, what do you, do you create an impression, which I, I believe, how do you make, and this is what, you know, where I think Henrietta and USAID officials are worth their weight in gold, and we need to tell these stories more, because you need to begin demonstrating that, that you can get momentum and progress, uh, demonstrate that, get out there and show these habits that they, so they can be replicated uh, without, to get what I call recurring returns without recurring effort. You've got to create habitual changes in lots of places of the world, otherwise you're never going to get a broad echo effect in geostrategic terms that, you, that, that, that we need to get. So I, I guess my, my real message when you, when you think about the public and what they should expect in this arena is is, 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 I think, to, to get greater confidence in some of the stories we're feeling, but they should also demand for more for their government. The one last thing I'll add before, before we take this further is, um, I recently had Anthony Zinni, a former four-star general, in to talk about smart power. And Zinni has been in almost every smart panel, and you probably know what I'm going to say. He's become, you know, somewhat uh, disabused of the notion, not because he doesn't believe in it, but when you look at the government, he says the way we do it as a government just sucks. And, and we have a dysfunctional uh, uh, set of players in this arena who don't work well together. We now have a quadrennial, uh, what is it, diplomacy and development review going on, which has 
which has awakened all of these turf battles inside the government, rather than bringing them together, you have a ferocious fight over nation building and where those assets should be placed and who should, should do them. And this is just you know, on theory and paper. And I think to some degree, that needs to be fixed. Tony made a recommendation, which I it instinctively think is horrible, but I understand where it came from his, his frustration. He said, you know, the DOD, uh, play scenarios of everything. They say, if we're going to go in and we're going to invade a country or we're going to go in and try and change, we, we play out 17 different scenarios. He said the nation-building community, the global justice community, don't do that. They find lots of vignettes. They fail to find habits or uh, best practices or things that, are, that, are, that become replicable over time. And, and thus, when you throw resources, he says it's more like a black hole because they don't have the resources to do that. All the resources are in the Pentagon. So he said, let's, let's take advantage of that. Let's put all of the civil affairs functions of all the commands in the Pentagon in their own standalone command. We'll call it, you know, the nation-building command or something under DOD. And then teach USAID and other, other parts of government, Department of State, the Secretary's Coordinator for Reconstruction and Stabilization, how to do it, so to speak. And then maybe out there, out of that, now I think that's a terrible idea, but it does get at the core point that a lot of the resources that need to be at USAID or need to be, aren't there. And, and certainly the story's not there, and so we've got to somehow disentangle those elements before I think the American public can become, can see their own interests furthered by robust, strong engagement. I guess the very last point I'll say is one thing has really changed in the, in the Congress since I worked as a staff member in the Senate. Um, a lot of our Republican colleagues, I'm an independent, but a lot of our Republican colleagues were so hostile about passports, so hostile about uh, engagement in global affairs. That has changed. I've been to uh, U.S. Global Leadership Coalition dinners, and there's a young uh, Republican congressman, Aaron Schock, who's leading and shaming his party into more support for global engagement. So that's a positive side of this story, which, which, which I do want to put on the table. But why don't I finish there, and I'll, I'll finish here with this gone to the picnic stuff. You know, in listening to this, I'm struck by, uh, and maybe jaded by my 30 years in Washington, and the idea of being how you ever take a theory and uh, make it a viable strategy that you can work with. And I, I look back at DOD and some of the dysfunction that exists there prior to the mid-'80s. And the Congress created something called Goldwater-Nichols right. that forced the integration of the senior levels of the military so that they better understood what each did and would work together to uh, formulate our policy and then uh, actually do the policy. Is it possible that we need that sort of thing on an interagency basis in order to bring something of the, like this about? And is that even possible on an interagency basis? Henrietta? Uh, well, uh, you're onto a very interesting issue. And it's something that we began to look at uh, with Secretary Gates and Secretary Rice. And we, we found that we had a challenge of the ratios of the size of these departments. So Department of Defense was this big, and State was this big, and USAID was this big. So when you tried to rotate officers among these departments, you just didn't have enough. So one of our challenges is to try to strengthen all parts of the smart power within the United States um, government so that you do have the capacity. 
but that the exchange and the training, and especially before going out to some conflict countries like Afghanistan and, and others, is very helpful to train across agencies so that you know each other, your friends, you understand the roles and responsibilities, and it's very important that you understand your partners, the nonprofit organizations and the businesses that are out working there because you have to be exactly what Greg is saying, you have to empower the local people. And that's something that you need to translate from Washington to the field. If I may very quickly, we absolutely need to reform Goldwater Nichols and we need a new national security decision-making structure that includes questions of water, migration, refugees, uh, disease, um, the, 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 what we call the sort of non-traditional threats arena, which fit very much in what Joe's, those have been traditionally outside. Now we have largely a coalition of the willing in the Obama national security system, where lots of players are included, but it's not a structured process codified in law. And I think that that, that is something where we need to move both so that all the players in the process can have greater confidence, and I think so the American public and also legislators can see something that's not just going to be a subjective game that can be uh, moved this way and that. So I, I'm, I know that many folks may not understand uh, uh, what goal, maybe you do understand Goldwater Nichols, but national security decision-making structure and the inclusion of voices is absolutely a vital part of thinking from intelligence and others, and, and we need to bring in this non-traditional set of uh, uh, issues, which includes development, frankly, uh, in, a, in very broad terms, or I don't think that we're going to get past this thing of looking like we have a very slipshod, uh, ad hoc approach to these development questions. Yeah, I, I would add that... Uh, we're doing some things well. Let's not forget that some things do work. I, the Peace Corps is a, is a good example. But uh, let's take the military. If you think of uh, uh, the military, we always think of it as hard power, you know, shooting your way into some place. Uh, think of the following example. Uh, in Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, in 2001, the United States was popular with 75% of Indonesian people. By 2004, after we used the military to invade Iraq, it went down to 15%, 1-5. At the end of 2004, when there was a tsunami that devastated Aceh in northern Indonesia, the US military was used to provide relief. And our popularity in Indonesia went up to 43%. That's, a that's use of the military to generate soft power not just hard you know power. Who ran, you, you know who ran that? Who? You? Well, no, no, <laughs> jo, no. I, I want to mention, it's very important. A guy named John Allen ran that. Mm -hmm. John Allen is, is, was until two weeks ago Deputy, um, Deputy CENTCOM Commander under, under General Petraeus right. now, and is the guy who started, the first guy at the, when he was Commandant at the Naval Academy, started mm -hmm. teaching uh, Arabic, Muslim, mm -hmm taught these appreciation courses and I mean, he's a very unique guy. So I just yeah. wanted to add to, no, to that's a, It's a good point. The, the, the larger point I was trying to make, though, is that there are, the government is doing a number of things well, but there isn't a strategy that pulls them all together. And that, I think, is where we're really lacking. And that's part of the bad news. I mean, the good news is that there are many things that are being done well, but we haven't found ways to pull it all together. And also, we have a government which is composed of uh, a giant and a lot of pygmies. I mean, essentially, the DOD is a huge, well-functioning bureaucracy. I worked there and was proud to have worked there. But if you compare that to the resources that are available to other parts of the government, it's minuscule. We were you know, 
probably you all have heard this comparison that there are more people playing music in the military than there are foreign service officers. Not to mention AID officers, and that there's probably twice as many as there are AID officers. So we're not allocating resources and we're not integrating resources. But let me, let me in concluding, uh, pick up a point that Greg made, which I agree with very much. Uh, the great projection of soft power from the United States comes as much from our civil society as from our government. Most people in the world probably have more contact with American business and American nonprofits and NGOs than they do with American government. And that, I think, is extraordinarily important as we go into a world which is basically a globalized information-based world. So the kinds of work that Greg is doing is extremely important. The puzzle, which we haven't quite figured out, is how can the government be supportive without being damaging? And I wonder if we could get Greg to, to comment a little on that. Let's see. <laughs> no, if the I, government helps you, is it a help or is it the kiss of death? Well, we, we deliberately, we don't take any federal funding. We, don't, we never will. But on the other hand, we bend over backwards to try and help USAID and the State Department and the military. I mean, we, we're extensively involved. But we don't, the reason we do that is just we don't want to be perceived as an instrument of the U.S. government. On the other hand, uh, because of the goodwill, we, we really work hard, um, even at threat sometimes, to try and help, like, the State Department or people in, inside the embassy who you know, rarely go outside. And we, try, we bring people into the embassy so they can meet them, and when they meet people, you know, that's when things start happening. Um, I was struck by, I visit about two dozen military bases a year, and I, I help brief troops going overseas, and again, I do this totally voluntarily. I, I'm, not, I'm not a consultant, and I don't get any, I pay my own way, and my hotel and food and everything. But I, I was at, um, I've been at um, CENTCOM, and I've also been at SOCOM, which is a Special Forces Command, uh, three times. And I was struck by Admiral Eric Olson, who's our Special Forces Commander. He's of the um, persuasion that what needs to happen is there needs to be, he calls them Lawrence of Arabias, but we need to have people whose entire career is focused on either one job specification or one area. And their real focus right now is on the Horn of Africa. They've already said Afghanistan and Iraq is kind of toast and it's going to be ultimately a political and a you know, dilemma for NGOs and everything else, but in the Horn of Africa. So there, there, there's people now whose entire career track is going to be focused on Somalia, Sudan, Eritrea, um, and they're going, to, they're going to spend years learning languages and cultures and going, and, um, and they're, they're also told they're not going to be not promoted because they're going over there. That's um, what, I, what I see often with the U.S. government is um, Afghanistan and Pakistan are not the most, particularly most wanted posts. And people, every six or 12 months, they go in and out, and then there's no relationships. And, um, and again, I go back to the military just because they obviously they have a nice <coughs> fat budget and everything in the DOD. But um, when our troops now go to Afghanistan, they're sent on a three-year assignment. Now, the Marines are there for eight months, and the Army 12 or four, 15 months. But what it means is when you, before you come back, there's a three-month overlap with your, your replacement, and then when you come back here, you're in contact with the person there, and then when you go back, you go back to that same base where you have the same relationships. And 
I don't know, like in USAID, is it better to go around to get promoted or do you focus on one country all your life? Or, you know, I don't know. But I think, you know, part of that um, concept. And there's also been some really unique things like you know, Camp Lejeune, uh, many of our Marines now, before they go to Afghanistan, they have to embed with a gang in Los Angeles for four or six weeks because they said fighting the Taliban is not this ideological entity, but they, th they perceive it more as fighting a mafia or a gang. And, and I, if you want to get into that later, I can, we can discuss that. But it, um, and it's had quite a bit of success when they're seen as more a criminal element and a gang and a mafia, not just this kind of ideological big entity. And I also, you know, having spoken many times with Admiral Mike Mullen, who was here a week ago, um, and General Petraeus, they will both tell you there's no military solution in Afghanistan, you know, period. And I think um, it's somewhat unrealistic now. We, meaning the U.S. people and our government, we expect the military to solve all our problems. And we expect our soldiers to be diplomats, warriors, and humanitarians, which, you know, I'm just a humanitarian, and I can barely do my job, let alone be a diplomat or a warrior. And um, there are, um, I, you know, I always have these figures to just give you an idea. We have roughly 95 to 100,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan now. There are 35 to 40,000 coalition troops and 90,000 Afghan troops. That's 220,000 troops against 25,000 Taliban. We outnumber them 10 to 1. Our budget there is, I don't know, $7,500 billion. They have no air power. So we definitely need to think about other ways, because obviously there's no military solution, but the kind of tragedy is also the DOD is getting all the money to try and solve this problem, but um, I also have seen a tremendous growing curve in the military. Um, uh, Mike Admiral Mullen, he said, you know, I'll quote him at a speech at the American Legion National Convention last August in Louisville, Kentucky, he said, historically we have been far too arrogant in the world, he means the United States, and we need to go out and serve with humility. And then he said, um, the Muslim community is a subtle world which we don't fully and don't always attempt to understand. And only through the shared appreciation of the people's cultures, needs, and values can we ourselves hope to supplant the extremist narrative. And I'm just quoting a military general, admiral, sorry, um, because um, just to show that even a hard, you know, a hard lifelong military admiral you know, those words are quite profound when you think about them. And um, I, I didn't hear that from a politician. I heard it from a military admiral. So uh, I think we can all, um, I think the soft power is uh, something we, I don't want to get back the question to you again. But. Well, I, the, actually what's interesting is some people at the top of the military understand soft power and learned it before some civilians. And some of the people who learned it in the military learned it the hard way. I've had a number of students at the Kennedy School have come back having been captains or majors in Iraq or <coughs> Afghanistan and realized that the old military doctrine we have wasn't adequate for what they did. Sure, we could storm in and take the place quickly with shock and awe as you started. Then what do you do? You're suddenly the mayor of a town in northern Iraq, or the de facto mayor, and what skills have you been trained for? What resources you have at hand, and how are you going to manage this? And to just say, look, I'm trained to shoot and break things, and I'm not supposed to do this. You don't have that luxury. And you wind up learning to do it on the ground. 
And that, I think, is, has been a huge change in the American military in the last uh, half a dozen years. So in many ways, the military have learned the importance of soft power, but even more, how to integrate it with hard power, which is what SMART is about. We, too, are uh, resource constrained. Our resource here is time. So um, in the interest of our audience, I'd like to turn to you and see what questions we have. And start with this gentleman right here. Yes. Hi, uh, Eli Lake from The Washington Times. This is a question for Dr. Nye. Is fear a useful emotion in the current international system? Is it important or is it useful to have rogues and rivals fear American power? And how do you instill that fear in spoilers in the international system while also persuading potential partners that our goals are similar to theirs? That's a very interesting question and, and one which, which has long classic origins. If you go back to Machiavelli, which is uh, in the 1500s, uh, he asks the question, is it better to be feared or to be loved? And he decides it's better to be feared, but it's actually better to be both. And that's the secret of, of smart power. There are countries, Korea, Iran, and others, where soft power is not going to do what you need where you actually have to demonstrate that you have a military capacity. And there are also places like U.S. position in Asia where our troops in Japan are important for setting a structure of protection for the area as a whole, which is extremely important. So, yeah, hard military power and the fear factor that goes with them is and remains important, but it's not sufficient. And it's absolutely essential to combine it with soft power. So Machiavelli ended this discussion by, uh, in, the, in the Italian city-state system of, of the 16th century. He said, the prince who is feared will do better than the prince who's loved. But the opposite of fear is hatred. And he said, if a prince is hated, then he will lose in the long run. Yeah, I remember as a student at West Point, it, it was not fear that they taught me, but the idea was respect. And they yeah. said, you yeah. didn't have to be loved, but you had to be respected. So I have a question back here. Hi, I'm Shelley Porges, and um, I'm part of the Smart Power Initiative from the State Department. So I want to share with you a couple of things and then ask you a question. I lead an initiative called Global Women's Business Initiative. It's very new. It's about three months old. And it's part of sort of an experiment we have going on in the Economics Bureau at the State Department. I couldn't agree with you more that coordination um, interagency, though we do a lot of it, in fact, is a huge challenge and certainly wouldn't be done, you know, wouldn't be called um, effective in the outside world. I came from the private sector prior to this situation. But um, I want to put out there an idea, get your reaction to it, and then give you two examples of why I think it'll work. Um, the idea is seed the government with entrepreneurs. Um, those of us who are part of this experiment all came into the government having been entrepreneurs, having built businesses, scaled businesses, businesses that were sustainable, businesses that employed people, businesses that created value, and businesses that then became valuable for the communities and countries that they're part of. What we're finding at the State Department is that if we can do what we do within government, we can have a huge impact. And I'll give you two examples. 
So t speaking about reconstruction after war, I recently consulted with uh, one of the, our reconstruction experts in the Department of Defense in Nineveh, in a province in Iraq that has a, it's an extremely ethnically diverse province. So normally you would say, gosh, there's too much fracture here. There are too many different parties here. We can never get these people together. And this fellow, on his own, set up 40 women's business associations. And each of those 40 women's business associations had 500 members. We're talking about 20,000 women throughout one province. And they are currently now, these are women who, for the most of these, are the poorest of the poor. They're also women who have no education. They, you would have said, write them off. They have no possibilities here. These are all women who now have businesses. Most of them are micro-businesses, but some of them have emerged as leaders, as you might expect. They are leaders of these 40 business women's organizations that we can now work with um, to build bigger and better things. And to Greg's point, they're sustainable. We have empowered them. It's not us doing it to them. They have done it to themselves. So very much, these are the kinds of things we want to do. Point number two, or example number two, at the Presidential Summit on Entrepreneurship about two and a half months ago, uh, we launched the Global Entrepreneurship Program. It's a program where we're trying to create entrepreneurial ecosystems around the world in key geographies that are strategically important to us because we're firm believers that if we can help these um, and support local and regional economies create their own jobs, create their own values, then this can, in the end, of course, benefit all of us. So I want to know, what's your idea about seeding the government, seeding entrepreneurs into the government? Well, let me just respond, since I came into the government as an entrepreneur. Uh, I think it's very important that there be entrepreneurs in every sector of society. They're going to be important for creativity and new ideas everywhere. Your concept of reaching out in the developing world is important, and it's already going on in USAID. So you've got to link up. This is this intergovernmental with the Global Development Alliance. Don Presley is here somewhere and was one of its creators. But it's very important that you link up these the power of women worldwide, I think, is at the tipping point. It's an extraordinary power. It's going to be there for businesses, whether it's a Procter & Gamble or Coca-Cola. It's going to be there for governments, and it's going to be there for nonprofits. So it's a very important initiative. I would just say very quickly, um, I loved the White House uh, Conference on Entrepreneurship. Ben Rhodes told me it cost about $300,000. I think it was one of the best expenditures for huge impact with global uh, that changed the minds of a lot of people around the world, so I think that's great. I am, um, could be easily seduced by your notion about entrepreneurs throughout government, but let me tell you, the big, from being someone who is, is in that Washington world and how I try to, say, take our think tank or take what we do and differentiate it from others in the, in the marketplace there, most of Washington is incredibly risk-averse. And what you're talking about is a risk-taking culture. And I, I will have to say that while I could... I could I'm just being a realist here. I can applaud the things you're doing, and I could say they're great, but from my view, they're more anomalous than they are a trend. And until you begin to see support from the top for failure, someone has to be able to take a risk and fail and continue to be embraced. And until that happens, the federal government will not change the way it operates. Lady over there, please. Thank you. A question for Greg. So what did the elders tell the president? <laughs> well, and this is through the military. The, you know, I, 
I was envisioning, when I heard about this, I thought there was going to be like this, um, what do you call that, um, Skyping going on, but um, some military generals went to President Obama. Anyways, what they said is, first of all, they, they had huge advocacy for the National Solidarity Program, which is basically an Afghan initiative. It's kind of like USAID, but run by Afghans. And uh, the second thing is they said, please do not bomb and kill civilians. I mean, that is, well, that's probably one of their top rhetorics. They said, if you, don't, if you don't like somebody, we'll go get them ourselves. And the third thing they said is, we would like to be involved in the discussions, which, which to me, it's very exciting because this is now starting to happen. Um, and I, I think um, I, I'm, I'm always somebody who really admires the elders and wisdom of, of the ages, but after World War II, you remember the Marshall Plan, um, and it, I think it was a brilliant plan, and I've studied it extensively, but the Marshall Plan, especially in Italy, the brilliance in it was it was provincialized and decentralized. So when, after Afghanistan, um, in December 2001 was the Bonn Conference, and two dozen countries got together, and they decided to pledge some money on how to rebuild the country, but they set it up as a very centralized, deprovincialized type of system. And in Afghanistan, that really didn't work very well. And the other thing is we ran off to Iraq. It's only been in the last maybe 18 to 24 months, including President Bush's last year, that we really started looking at more of a provincial, decentralized process. And, um, you know, as much as we try to prop up a very federal central government in Afghanistan, the reality is that if the elders aren't involved at all, it's not really going to work, I don't think. And no matter what we do, um, even if the, the, they have a military and everything. And so um, I, just, I just think it's important that we involve the elders in the discussion. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple process. And like, um, for example, um, this operation in Kandahar, it's called Omid, it means hope in Pashto, that's supposed to happen this summer. General McChrystal delayed it, but it was because the elders advised him that there were not the relationships with the people yet before going into the area. And, you know, it's, it was risky for him to say that because the election's coming up here in November, and there's also this uh, concern about troop withdrawal by next summer. But because the elders suggested spend some more time to work with us, uh, get our local people involved, help us, you know, with this whole process, um, we, we think it's very dangerous for you to do this right now. And so that operation has been right now delayed a little bit. And, uh, but it's because the elders were involved in the discussion. But I think the general public, we want to see some results for all our deployment and our billions of dollars. So, um, but that's just an example of the elders having some influence now on a huge military operation um, that, that is supposed to happen quite soon. Steve. Just, just real quick, I mean, Greg, Greg has mentioned the Marshall Plan, and, and I think it's important to look back and think about these big strategic moves that the United States made in which it did so much global sculpting. And, and to then look at the period we're in today, and I think we should be raising our expectations of what we do with our applied resources and applied thinking. You know, J Joe, Joe and I spent a lot of time in Japan, and many people think Japan just evolved. That wasn't, Japan's development was a strategic choice of the United States to embed Japan deeply in our economy, to basically create a strategic relationship there that would, that would take it. It did not grow just through free trade or, or whatever. It was a strategic choice. And I would say today, you know, this is a big ideas festival, the Atlantic Monthly, the Aspen Institute. 
the, the thing that I find missing from the big ideas is we really haven't yet made the jump, despite all the aid that we're doing with Afghanistan, to make the same choice with Afghanistan that we did with Japan. We could easily create trade uh, preferences and economic preferences that had massive macro impacts on that country and created opportunities that, that, that were substantially more than this. We could buy the entire opium crop, poppy crop, uh, for $3 billion just a pittance, actually, in terms of what we're spending, and completely convert the... I mean, we're not doing those things. So while we're talking about this, I want to just say that while you're absolutely right on the Marshall Plan, we're nowhere near that level of thinking today, in my view. And the big idea that I would hope the Atlantic might look at is what are, the, what are those big ideas that we have in our history, the metaphors uh, of interaction with the world that could help sculpt us and take it in a different direction? And I would say in a far less expense and more efficacious way than we're doing today. Mariana? Well, just in addition to this, it's, it needs a strategy that's in all the U.S. interests, and it needs the resourcing to be able to carry it out. Just, just you know, one, one example is, you just heard there's a trillion dollars or more of mineral resources in Afghanistan. We've known about this for three or four years. There's no school of mines in Afghanistan. So we could really easily set up a school of mines so that China and Russia and the U.S. don't come in to exploit their resources. Um, there's also... 400 women right now in law school in Afghanistan, they're struggling. It's very not cool for a woman to be a lawyer. They're also going to become old maids, and um, they're not given much credibility. I've met them. They're, most of them are struggling. They have kids. Um, why not? You know, and they're going to become the future politicians, um, diplomats, um, judges, and everything. So why not? You know, there's some small micro areas like set up a school of mines. We, we have set up a military academy in Afghanistan, which is, there's 24 universities in the country, but it is the finest university in the country, but they're also teaching agronomy, horticulture, um, animal husbandry, um, what do you say, nurses. They're going to start a medical program now. They're not just, you know, trained to be infantry. And um, every bright student in the country wants now to go to the military academy because it's the finest education. It was set up by a high school teacher who was a colonel from Oklahoma, and he, uh, it's, a, it, it's been going on now, I think, six years, five years ago, um, set up by a National Guard colonel who's a high school teacher. You know, I, I'm struck when we cite the Marshall Plan because there's been nothing since that's like that, and it's not clear to me that our plan shouldn't look more like the, quote, Vietnam Plan if indeed it was a plan that evolves like it does over a long period of time. So I need to ask Jane for her question. Well, thank you. I, uh, I, sitting here, I thought of the next big idea. I'd like to propose it, which is that President Obama should make these four panelists the new czars for smart power. They represent all the political parties, Democrat, Republican, and Independent. And I think we'd be a long way ahead if they were out, out and about. I know you are here out and about, but uh, the others uh, are more confined. And I, I think it's a spectacular panel. Let me say a couple things, because uh, Joe and Steve um, have made uh, comments about what does Congress think. Um, that might be an oxymoron. I'm not sure that Congress thinks. <laughs> but putting that aside, um, I, uh, 
I, I think first, Joe, uh, that, that smart power is our new uh, national security doctrine uh, post-Cold War. Uh, I think you coined the term, but I think that is what we do. We don't do it very well. We do it episodically, but we don't do it well. And I think that's where we have to go. And we should congratulate Bob Gates for speaking out over and over and over again about the need for more resources at the State Department. And everyone is watching uh, Gates and Clinton work um, seamlessly together on, um, on uh, the projection of U.S. power. So that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but how does Congress think about this? The, there is not yet enough political value uh, for smart power. Congress thinks about military support, and then it thinks about other. Uh, I think the, the first time I really saw this argument joined, not very effectively, but was in the, in the last several weeks when we voted on the supplemental for uh, Afghanistan. And a number of people, certainly including me, said, why are we going to spend another $33 billion for this surge in Afghanistan when we spend just a... Uh, a small fraction of this on more dangerous places like Pakistan, for example, which is right next door. And uh, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, here's my question. In a, in a time of constrained resources, none of you mentioned this, but no one is missing the debt and deficit. Uh, and Bob Gates even is saying, to his credit, that we have to look at cutting back the defense budget. At a time of constrained resources, is there now an opportunity to make this argument better, to say that uh, we can't spend this much money anymore on basically hard power. We have to figure out lower cost ways to project U.S. power and smart power, um, which includes hard power, but it obviously includes diplomacy and development, is cheaper and more effective. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I think Jane is right that it's a time when we maybe could make an argument. Uh, the notion of leverage is one that we have underutilized in prior years. Um, the Marshall Plan had parts of it with the use of U.S. companies and U.S. supply chains. And we're just getting back to that, where companies and nonprofits and foundations and academic institutions are all partners out there. And we, in, we can use leverage in a way that we just haven't. For instance, in Cairo, when you are going through Cairo, you see all of the dishes above every house. And every young child, before they go to school, is watching television, and they're watching Sesame Street. And that's because of a small um, addition to funding for a great program, Sesame Street, that's now being brought into almost every household. I mean, the viewership is just extraordinary, above 90% in Egypt. So we can leverage in ways that we just haven't in the past. And I think it is a moment when we could do that. So here, here. Joe? I, I uh, sympathize very much with your question, Jane. I think we need, I, my, Steve and I often agree on things. I don't think a Marshall Plan is gonna work for Afghanistan. You look at the Marshall Plan as 2% of our GDP given to European countries that were already developed and they were destroyed in the war, but they had the infrastructure and the middle class and all that was there. And somebody like Rory Stewart, who knows Afghanistan well, will say it's 20 years before you'll get that in Afghanistan. We're not gonna do that for 20 years. Nor are we gonna be able to do 
a full-scale counterinsurgency, attractive though it might sound, at a million dollars an American soldier per year in Afghanistan, this just is, we're not going to be able to do it. As the Afghan Taliban say, uh, you know, you have the watches, we have the time. So we need, we need a big idea, but it's in a different direction. It's a different strategy. I'm attracted to Rory Stewart's idea. He's a, now a conservative member of parliament in Britain, but uh, has spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and set up a nonprofit uh, foundation in Afghanistan. He says you want a light footprint for a long duration, which is a very different strategy than we have. And I think we have to rethink our strategy that way. We have to put it within a broader context of how is American military power going to be used. If you get into the belief that counterinsurgency means we get involved in every conflict in Asia, we're violating the wisdom of Dwight Eisenhower, of all people, good Republican as he was, which is stay out of land, American troops stay out of land wars in Asia. He was very correct about that because we're, we're not gonna win that in the long run. That doesn't mean you stay out of Asia. American troops in Japan, where there are now 40,000, the Japanese provide host nation support to that. It costs us almost nothing. So if we pick our spots and our ways of deploying American military, we can shape the environment in very important ways and not get caught in the trap that I think a strategy of trying to do full-scale counterinsurgency in Afghanistan will lead us to. I just want to say for the record that I largely agree with how with Joe's concerns about the Marshall Plan per se. I, I would script, I'm using it in, in a metaphorical sense, that there are different strategies that can be used completely with a much lighter footprint with, with various economic approaches uh, that, I, that I think there. But I, I want to respond directly what, to what Jane said. As I think it's so important to not get stuck just in the Afghanistan silo, to think about American power uh, globally and what's happened. Uh, when I go around the world, I really see that the biggest national security challenge in the United States is to show the world we can accomplish anything we say we're going to do. Because there's such a enormous doubt today in our ability to do anything we say we're going to do. We, we're a lot of platitudes, there's a lot of rhetoric, but we don't have a lot in the results column. And this is translating not just into the animation of, of various foes, more importantly, it's translating into doubt in allies about our ability to be there for them when they need them. This has created, I think, something we've got to overcome. Being a superpower in the world is far more mystique than real. What I mean by that is when, when the world had no sense of our limits, no sense of our military or economic limits, we had a greater ability. This is exactly, you know, textbook Joe Nye. We had ability to, to get people to want what we wanted, or they, they would want what we wanted because of sure. the ability to basically create global weather. That's not the case today. Militarily, the Afghanistan problem and Iraq make it look as if we're near a breaking point. When you show limits, doubts are created. Economically, we managed to pull a move like China. We exported toxic financial products to the rest of the world. This was like Neil Ferguson said yesterday, an enormous builder of doubt in America's leadership on the economic front. Morally, I think that the, particularly in the Middle East, I think for everything Greg Mortensen has done, which is fantastic, I think that, that the problems we had with crimes in Abu Ghraib and others really did cause a lot of problems for us in the United States. We need to rebuild all of those fronts and to realize that's the way to, to move us back forward and to sort of do both the micro but also realize we've got these macro realities that, we, that we've got to deal with. And that's what I think 
the, the most affected deployment of smart power will be there. We're not having those strategic discussions. Dwight Eisenhower, when he came in after Truman, was dealing with the problem that he had a bunch of Republicans around him who hated the notion of containment. And yet he knew himself personally that's where the United States had to go with the Soviets. And he organized a competition among different teams of thinkers and national security strategists to compete with each other. It was all classified, called the Solarium Exercise. It's now declassified. It's fascinating to look at. These teams competed with each other to show they had to pay for their worldview and do a systematic analysis of global affairs, the social and economic consequences over time. We need a solarium today on exactly that front to raise these big questions, and we should let Joe Nye and Henrietta co-run it. Uh, uh, and and we, we can testify to Jane Harmon and others. But I think that that is what's missing in, in a discussion about smart power and American power and global strategy and where things like Afghanistan or Iraq fit in. It's, I think, criminal not to talk about this in the broader context of, of the cost and benefits of the different things we're doing. Well, I, I will do it solarium, but I should tell you that I've got a book coming out in February called Power in the 21st Century, which has this answer. Okay, good. <laughs> Henrietta? Okay, back to Jane's big idea. I think it's terrific. Um, 20 years ago, 70% uh, of our uh, outreach, our assistance, came from governments and only 30% came from private businesses. And Carol Littleman has studied this and has great numbers in which those numbers are now flipped. So 70% is coming from private entities. That means that everybody in this room, whether you're a corporation or an NGO or involved with your organizations, you have links out to this world that we are talking about. And they're in every village, they're in every town, they're in every city. That's a lot of power that we have not yet tried to think about how it can be effective. And it's, it's there, though, and it's a different time than the Marshall era, but it's, right. it's, a, it's a time of opportunity. So. Run with a big idea, Jane. We have time for one last quick question, and take this side over here. Okay, John Jeffs from Palo Alto. Uh, my big idea is I think we're all avoiding the big idea. We shouldn't be in Afghanistan. Maybe Mr. Stewart's idea is, is the way to go, but it seems to me, you, you've all heard the arguments, Al-Qaeda is in there and so on. We're not going to win this war, and the public isn't going to... Uh, uh, stand for it for long, and we can't afford it. So I'd, I'd like to hear why we should be in Afghanistan following the policy we are. Great. We, can, we can run down the line. I'll, I'll take a first crack at it. Uh, if it were de novo, I would agree with you. But history is, as they say, path-dependent. We're there. If we suddenly withdraw immediately, you'll have India and Pakistan and other neighbors filling the gap in a civil war in Afghanistan, and that'll destabilize Pakistan, which will affect India. It'll have much larger implications. But we're not going to be able to control Afghanistan. We're not going to have a central government in Afghanistan, which is under our control. And the idea that we're going to do full-scale counterinsurgency, which would take 10 years and three times as many troops as we have there, that's not going to happen. So the reason I'm attracted to the Rory Stewart idea of a limited footprint for a longer duration is it's a way to answer your question, which is better than sheerly getting out quickly. Greg? Well, I, you know, you meant military presence, right? Um, well, I, I definitely, I mean, if you ask our military commanders there, 
As I mentioned before, they also will tell you there is no military solution in this country. And um, I also, um, I have, oh, particularly for Afghanistan or Pakistan, I really think, um, you know, I'm, I'm an education advocate, and whether or not the U.S. military is in Afghanistan, it's not really going to affect our work very much. You know, I, it's because we have the relationships. And I also, um, you know, this is a different, I was at the FBI headquarters last week, and I was talking to all the 300 counterinsurgency, counterintelligence people, sorry, counterinsurgency. <laughs> and um, it was interesting. I was really struck because I was thinking of the FBI as more older bunch of guys and, you know, white crime and blue crime and all this stuff, but about half of them were women. And they, in their counterinsurgency, sorry, counterintelligence, get mixed up between FBI and Afghanistan, um, they were looking at things like population, water. Um, they have experts on all these fields, and this is within our government already. Also, women's entrepreneur ideas as a way to, um, you know, for, for national security. Um, I'm just going to close with an example of population. And the, I think, well, it's proven the number one way. I think the biggest problem we have in this plan is there's too many people, especially if you look in three to five generations. Pakistan is going to double in population in the next 27 years, from 175 million to 350 million people. If we think we have problems there now, you know, think, and the reason for that is their female literacy rate is about 35%. Um, Bangladesh, in uh, 1970, the female literacy rate was less than 20%. Today, it's 65%. The average woman in Bangladesh 40 years ago had nine births. Today, the average woman has 2.8 live births, and it's just reaching an apex. So... Um, in Afghanistan, you know, what, the way I look at I, whether or not, the, if the military's there, we're going to try and help them, but if they're not there, our work's going to go on, but it's because of the relationships, like and it's what Rory Stewart advocates and we are talking about. So, um, and we can, we can pull out the military, but I also think our military is supporting a huge amount of our economy, the military-industrial complex, and it's so, you know, that's, that's another thing, is like, I think that's the reason the Pakistan-India war can't be dismantled in Kashmir because it's gone on now for three generations and there's millions of people, retired military officers in Islamabad and Delhi who have big stakes in that. And so if you dismantle the whole war, um, then what are you going to create in the void of it? So um, I don't know. And that's a question for the congresswoman here. And failing states uh, create a real problem, whether it is from a military aspect or from development or from diplomacy. And when you look at the indicators for insecurity and instability, it is usually due to poverty and it is due to poor governance. So it is a dollar that you invest in preventing a conflict is the best dollar you can spend. But once you're into a conflict, if you cannot resolve it peacefully and to have stability, you've created a whole nother problem that will cost much, much more in the future, in lives as well as in finance. Steve? Uh, this last week, Foreign Policy Magazine issued its Failed States Index. And in that index, if you looked at the top 20 nations there, there's some real troubling concerns. If we invade all of them, as we have in Afghanistan, uh, we'll bankrupt this country, and we won't succeed. We have to deal with the problem that we spend more money than all of the other nations in the rest of the world in, de in defense and yet we don't feel safe as a nation. We're not achieving the security deliverables we deserve. I'm working with a group of scholars and academics and policy practitioners right now 
on uh, a look at Afghanistan to rethink this that does involve a drawdown. It moves along the, lane, uh, the, the line that Gene Harmon logged. What are the ways in which you can achieve greater safety for Americans, where we're not necessarily allied with a corrupt regime uh, in, in, I mean, this, we haven't gotten into that. There's a lot we didn't touch uh, in, this, in this discussion. But, but to look at how do you go back to some sort of thinking about how do you achieve what you're trying to do, which is keeping Americans safe, getting, if you can, a different equilibrium in the region that will, that will generate more opportunity for women, et cetera, that was better than what existed before. But we're not going to be able to deliver on all of the kind of commitments that we would like to see. You know, one of the things that Joe said at the beginning about, um, I don't know whether it's soft or smart, but, but maybe soft, is, is trying to get other countries to converge with us, to get them to what, what we want. That's a really laudable goal, but it's very, very tough uh, in circumstances like this, and we need to dial down somewhat of our expectations about convergence from these societies that they're just not going to happen. And I don't think it ought to be that either the military's responsibility or the taxpayer's responsibility. So thank you. Great. I want to thank our panel for joining us today. It was, uh, it was truly stimulating conversation, and hopefully in the future we'll see a different way for the government to work in order to make this a real strategy. Thank Thanks very much. Great. Thank you.